0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sports Rivals. I'm Gary Thorne. We are delighted to have you with us. We are recording this during the corona crisis, so we deeply appreciate time being taken by our guests to join us here in some very tough times. Here on the Sports Rivals, our purpose is to preserve the memories of some of the great classic sports rivalries. We do it through the words of those who participated in those rivalries, so you get the rivalries described from the inside out. And our guest today, kind of a unique setting where you may not think about them as being his rivals, but when you think about it for a minute, it certainly can be classified that way. Ned Colletti has uh, been involved in so many aspects of baseball and hockey, for that matter. Ned was the uh, GM with the Dodgers, 2006 to 2014. He put up the best win percentage of any GM during the years that he was there for those in the National League. He had been uh, an assistant GM with the Giants, and I remember Ned from the days in the press box when he was working in the front office of the Chicago Cubs where uh, he first started in Major League Baseball. Barry Axelrod, for over 45 years, has been a sports agent. Barry has represented some of the uh, the greats of the game, the bagwell vigio couple, uh, Matt Morris, Mark Harmon, Rick Sutcliffe, and a host of others. Barry is an attorney, undergraduate, and law degree from UCLA and uh, really began uh, the sports law business for a firm that he joined initially when he was younger and then went out on his own and has had his own law firm uh, for a number of years. So you got Ned Colletti, the GM, you've got uh, Barry Axelrod, the agent. And I wanted to start with you guys because I got to thinking, and Barry, you may remember this, there was a time when GMs wouldn't talk to agents when agents were first coming into the picture for professional players did you ever I- encounter that? And can you talk a little bit about the growth of of agents and representation of athletes?
1: Um, yes, I um, I can. I, I did encounter it uh, early on. I think uh, the general managers back in the day, both in football, I started in football, but both in football and baseball were generally uh, you know old baseball guys, um, you know old school, definitely and. In walks a couple of young, you know, punks as they viewed us probably, Uh, you know, 25, 26, 27 years old and uh, trying to change things and and fighting for our clients. And I don't think a lot of people took kindly to that. I I experienced it only only briefly. Uh, And I think I was kind of um, got involved at the time when. Uh, things were starting to change. Uh, I, I had one particular general manager who uh, I, I pretty much thought hated me a lot. I, I represented three or four players on their team. And, and uh, we actually, way back in the day, had arbitration cases that would go very quickly. And I, I had two arbitrations in the same day and won both of them. And he pretty much came out in the press and said, I will never talk to him again. Uh, of course, he he eventually did because uh, I represented a couple of these good players, so he had to talk to me. But it was uh, there, there was a lot of joking about the fact that he he wouldn't talk to me again. I'll, I'll just give you one one postscript to that is years later, is actually Bill Schweppe from the Dodgers told me uh, that he was friends with this particular general manager. And I said, oh boy, that's, uh, he's, he's tough. He's, uh, he had a reputation of being sort of a, a, a mean, nasty curmudgeon. And you know, I said, that's rough being friends with him. And he said, yeah, you know, but he likes you though. He's always told me you're his favorite agent. And <laughs> I like, okay, that's, that's really hard to believe. I, <laughs> I, I wonder that what experience these other fellas have had. But, <laughs> mine is not always great.
0: So. that ring some bells, Ned? <laughs> oh Yeah
2: oh yeah you know uh, agents teach you how to listen they really teach you how to listen because they can use the english language to their benefit And they can uh, if you're not paying attention they will pick your pocket uh, one of the things i always did respect about barry and barry and i had a a pretty big arbitration case that uh, uh, I don't think it really ever separated us, but it was it was a little bit rugged for both of us. But uh, I always trusted Barry, and uh, maybe on this uh, this podcast I'll find out I was a fool. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I always there was about five percent of them that you, know, you were getting it straight. You may not have liked what you heard, but at least you were going to get it straight, and there wasn't any any uh, magic to it or any uh, any taking you down a path that didn't really exist. You know, I had agents tell me, yeah, I've got uh, I've got 60 million and I've got five years. You know, and if you're not paying attention, uh, you think that they got a a five year deal worth 60 million dollars. No, they may have a 10 year deal that's going to pay six million dollars a year and they may have the other number in another deal. But if you're not (laughs) listening, you're not paying attention. You're going to think that you got to go five and 60. Barry was was um, always, I thought on the up and up. That's why I'm talking to them today. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, you know, and Ned, I appreciate you saying that. And we were, uh, I had, you know, four or five instances where I had, uh, a pretty big free agent. Um, that's talking about the free agent situations where you're talking to various teams. And I always made a point with my clients. I explained to them early on that we were never going to allow a bidding or we were going to, Listen to every team respectfully, uh, and if a team was so out of line, we would certainly, early in the process, say, "Well, you're you're you know you're really not even close." And and uh, I, our our a close friend of ours, uh, both then mine, Kevin Towers, was one of my great friends and. Yes. Um, there were a couple of times when I had free agents that he really wanted, wanted to get a hold of, and he'd say, we're friends and you won't even give me a chance. I said, Kevin, let me be honest, you can't afford him. You're not going to be able to do it. I so said, let's you know focus your attention elsewhere, uh, and, and you know I always thought that was the right way to do it. We never told one team what another team was offering. Uh, we said, there will come a time when we'll ask you to make your best offer, and then we'll consider all the best offers and make a decision. And I think that maintained relationships over the years. And uh, let me say this, just a note on that. Uh, I know we're on a show about rivals, but I have a hard time viewing Ned as a rival. Um, We've known each other a long time. Before he got into the baseball operations side, we became good friends. And in years of negotiating contracts in regard to different people, uh, I don't think a, a cross word was ever spoken um I don't think there was ever distrust on either side um sometimes uh, you know when before Ned was a GM there were occasions when, they, when he was an assistant and he, he and I would talk about things and uh, oftentimes we were kind of on the same page and the and the GM might not be in a certain certain situations that's the one that led to our arbitration case that happened if uh and by the way, I, I lost two arbitration cases in my entire career, and one of them was to to, to Ned and his uh, crew. In that one, so I have him to thank for that.
2: <laughs> that one that involved Mark Grace, and I've got uh, I've got two two distinct uh, memories of that. One was from I think it was in the spring of '93, perhaps '92 or '93, and then also um, it, it, it kind of uh, came back two winters ago after 25 years of being dormant. But uh, one thing I don't think I've ever ever said to Barry is um, this is when when car phones had started to become part of the deal. And uh, the case was on a uh, Monday in Los Angeles at the Sheridan by the airport. I remember specifically, and I was in Chicago working for the Cubs and decided we were going to fly out. Our little group were going to fly out on Saturday. To get ready for this case, and I never really believed we were going to do the case. We were, we had uh, great relationships with Barry. I did at least. We had uh, he had Rick Suckliffe there before Mark Gray, so we had we had done business together before, but we we just couldn't get over about a fifty thousand dollar gap, and it was a million dollar arbitration case. And I can remember on the Friday, uh, my boss had come in and and, uh, and told me, you're doing this case and you better win. And he was he was really put me under the gun. And um, I called Barry just to see one more time if we could figure something out before I made the trek from Chicago to L.A. And. I've never, I've never told him this before, so I hope he's not mad at me now. <laughs> oh, but, boy, here we go. <laughs> but, <laughs> I hear him, you know, we're talking, he's driving, and I think he may have been driving with another agent, Tony Antanasio, who was, uh, is a good friend of, of both of ours, another San Diego-based agent. And I, I go to hang up the phone because I think Barry's hung up, I and know. I hear Barry say to maybe Tony or maybe somebody else, I can't believe they're going to come out here and do this case. And he's not telling me that. He's telling the passenger in the car that. But I haven't hung up yet. And so, you know, I don't make it it sound. They hang up, and I'm thinking, I wonder if they're ready for the case. You know? And I think, well, now my boss comes in again. And he says, when are you leave, I mean, he is like on my back. So I know I'm leaving. And I know I'm going out there. So we do end up going out there. We do end up doing the case and a lot of uh, looking back on it. Some funny stuff happened in the case. If you remember, Barry, I think uh, Doyle Pryor was, was with the union. And they had come into this little meeting room where, where you hold an arbitration case in a hotel meeting room. And, they had asked, does anybody want any lunch? The hotel was just being courteous. Well, nobody's
1: in the mood for lunch. I mean, this, is like, <laughs> this has been brewing for months, right? I, they, I hadn't. I probably hadn't eaten for days. So I <laughs> and I think Doyle
2: had ordered coffee or something. And so, like, you start the case because the player will go first with the case in chief. And, like, a minute in the Barry's case, in comes the coffee, right? <laughs> And and the guy drops the coffee pot and the and the cups and everything else all over the floor. So you got you got all this racket going on, and the case is already begun. I don't know if you remember that or not, but
1: I I I do. Oh, this is off to a historic start. (laughs) (laughs) And and they used to. I don't. I haven't done arbitration for a long time, but they used to enforce timing very carefully. You have an hour for your case in chief. The other side has an hour. Then you have a half hour for rebuttal, and they have a rebuttal, and that's it. And uh, So here I am. Okay, is, it, is my time getting eaten up here? <laughs> 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 Calamity that's going on?
2: <laughs> it was like symbols crashing, you know? It was like, yeah. oh, uh, I, you, I,
1: I I can tell you something I remember, which is, I, I left the room, and I don't know if it was I get a call, or I it was. It was going to be one last shot at this. You remember this, Ned? Yep. And I, I walked out, and I, I guess it was the GM at that time. And uh, I went downstairs and sat down. And I said, "Okay, this is it. I mean, we're so close. It's silly." And I think I proposed. Um, I, I think I had told Ned what I was going to propose beforehand, which was, "Let's close the gap by throwing some incentives in this deal." And if he, you know, plays to the level that we think he's going to play, he'll earn. You know, it will earn back to what we want. We'll close the gap. Very reasonable, I thought. And so I I go downstairs and present this and get an absolute no. We're going to hearing. Oh, my God. I I think I was steaming when I walked back. (laughs) Let's go.
2: (laughs) We were like the 50,000 apart, and I had suggested – uh, an all-star game bonus and a gold glove bonus. And he, and Gracie had already won one gold glove, which can be a repetitive reward. And I think then you went down with the call. And so it was like a conjunction of both our ideas to solve this. So we didn't have to go fight it. And when you came back, I knew it was, uh, it was decided <laughs> by somebody besides the two of us. <laughs> there we were.
1: <laughs> well, it was, we, we thought we were on the same page. It's, uh, I'll tell you one more thing. I don't want to get too deep into detail, but, but Gracie was a great player. He was. A, a, I, I think he deserved more consideration for the Hall of Fame, and hopefully one of these veterans committees are, will give him more. But he, he didn't even make it past the first the first vote. And, and the guy had, you know, uh, he led the decade in the 90s in hits and in doubles. Yes. And, I mean, he had a perfect... And a defense, a great defensive player, but more known for his defense. And he was not a home run hitter. And so I, you know, I'm looking for any type of statistics I can use to plead this case. And so I came up with runs produced. That was my stat. You know, I, my, my whole case hung on runs produced because that stat is, if I recall it is, is runs plus RBIs minus home runs. Cause you don't, Produced twice, you, an RBI and a home run. So so I, and Gracie with only whatever, 17 home runs or something, he came out great on the runs produced number. He didn't have spectacular RBI numbers, but, but he had pretty good runs scored numbers, and then he hardly uh, uh, subtracted anything for home runs. So he had a really good runs produced number, but top three or four in the league. And I can remember looking across the table and seeing Ned, and I believe it was Michael Weiner at that time. Uh, you know, they they got a yellow piece of paper and they pull it out and they like, okay here's Mark Grace you know runs produced uh, you know 90 RBIs and 90 runs scored minus 17 wow look he's got 163 and then here's player B you know right? and they actually did player A player B here's player A which is crazy numbers here's player B you know um 110 RBIs um you know 97 runs scored and whatever it was at that time 73 home runs <laughs> It was mcguire and I go, okay which player would you rather have even though mark Grace's runs produce number was so much higher because of the not subtracting home runs and he had this other guy with the spectacular stats and he was making less than we were asking for race. so i just kind of went oh no <laughs> oh, you know. we had God, uh, that, that, that didn't quite work out the way I was
2: planning. So. <laughs> we had, uh, you know, going against Barry was, well, I knew it wasn't going to be easy. And um, we had looked at some of his previous arbitration hearings, and he had won a couple cases, I think, with Wally Joyner yes. and um, another first baseman, client of Barry's, obviously. And he had used that argument, but he had used it differently because of the value of Wally Joyner's power. So I looked at two different cases Barry had done, and I found a section where he talked about the value of power and how power pays. And I'm looking at Mark Grace with seven home runs or eight home runs or 12, whatever he had. And so you do exhibits, okay? And you've got these things planned they are in your case. But in rebuttal, you can, it's a little bit more Wild West-like. It's a little bit more you know, free as far as what you're going to try and propose. So in the back of this meeting room, luckily the coffee never got to it. In the back of this meeting room, I had this um, exhibit underneath a blanket or, or underneath, you know, some, some covering. And it was this quote that said, if you are a, if you are a first baseman and you produce home runs, you deserve to be paid among the best because power pays. And next to the, next to that quote was the name. I can see a quote with a famous name next to it. Next to that quote was the name, the Barry Axelrod. So I left it in the corner until we got to rebuttal. And so I barely I said anything at the case. But I said this. I said, look, we have it on a good baseball authority. That power is how guys get paid for corner <laughs> positions. We've got it. We've got it. One of, great, one of the great people in the game, knowledgeable, smart, really articulate, you know, he's got his finger on the pulse, and I walk over, and I and I had the name covered up by tape, and I and I and I take the sheet off, it, and there it is. It, it's got their quote about how power pays. And and the arbitrator looks at me, and he goes, "Well, you know, who said that?" And I pointed to Barry. I said, "He did." And I pulled off the thing. I said, "We got a player here with no power. Like him or not?" like good good fielder we don't have any power and i I hated doing it but remember i had the boss who was like on my back if i didn't come back with a with a victory i wasn't
1: coming back with a job either so barry what'd you think of that uh it was like watching an episode of perry mason you know i should have just stood up and confessed yes I did. It was.
2: the actual lawyers who i brought in to do the case with me they actually have that exhibit on their wall and this is going back 25 30 years so we end up winning the case for a million right? and, and so my boss is happy with me for about 15 minutes barry's mad at me mark grace who i had a great rapport with from management player and vice versa wouldn't speak to me. We end up going to Mesa to spring trading. He's sitting in the dugout one Sunday morning, all by himself, way before BP. I walk out there. I go, Gracie, how much longer are we going to have this? Uh, you know, this no communication thing. And he goes, You know, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? And so we we mended the fence. So now, twenty five some years go by. This is the winter, I think, of seventeen, and um, we're having dinner in San Diego to see Barry and, and to see Rick Sutcliffe and to kind of reminisce and get together. And we end up having dinner. And who shows up but Mark Grace? And I've seen Grace a million times when he was with Arizona and doing TV there. So he and I have crossed paths probably 40, 50 times uh, since, he, since I left the Cubs and since he left the Cubs. So it's not like we've got a lot of old ground to traverse here or hard feelings. So we're sitting there at dinner. It's about two hours into the dinner. And the table gets quiet, fancy restaurant in the San Diego area, crowded on a Saturday night. And he looks over at me and he goes, you. I go, what about me? And he goes, you owe me a million effing dollars. (laughs) 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 This is 25 years later, right? I said, I don't owe you nothing. And he goes, "You owe me a million effing dollars." And he's standing up. And I look at Barry, and I point at Barry.
1: And I says, "He owes you a million." <laughs> oh my god! This is, this, is this is my going? this is my trusted friend. He <laughs> brings a secret exhibit on me and listens to my uh, phone call. <laughs> oh my god! I was wondering because you, I
0: mean, uh, Ned, you came up through the Cubs front office and you knew a lot of players you were working with public relations wise. And, and Barry, you'd met so many people doing your, your legal work. And then the representation of agents, how do you do, draw that line on the friendship and the professional when you're looking at you know, Ned on the other side of the table?
1: Well, I, this goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, us being on a show with the word "rivals" in the title, I, I, it's hard for me to look at Ned as a rival. I had that kind of relationship with several uh, front office people, and most notably, probably Kevin Powers. Uh, Theo Epstein is a very close friend that I talk to regularly. He, uh, uh, you know, he came up through the pottery organization, working under Kevin, and we became close then. Um, yet we've been on the other side. Uh, Theo and I uh, negotiated until recently the two biggest contracts in Padre history and yet remain, you know, good friends guys. You can go out and have dinner with it. It's something that I think, I think people don't uh, you get to have a misconception about the relationships, especially in modern times, uh, that since those curmudgeonly old general managers are basically gone is, we're all, we, we all become friends somehow. If you do it the right way, I think you're friends. I mean, I, uh, I I've gone on trips and outings with a, another general manager too, another front officer too, some of my clients, some of my other friends. And uh, there was an article, um, uh, written in, the, in the San Diego paper several years ago by Tom Krasnick and, and, uh, at the, uh, he asked the same question, basically, that you just asked, Gary. He said, how can you do this? How can you negotiate contracts and, and be on the opposite side of Kevin Towers, yet you guys are at the closest of friends? And I said, you know, Mito, and, and he, they, he asked Kevin the same question. And what we said, and I can apply this to Ned as well, is that neither one of us have ever compromised doing what's right for your client Uh, Because of friendship, you fight for your, you fight for your client. Ned fights for his team. You know, what's best for his organization. You battle it out. You go to arbitration, you do whatever you do. And then you make your deal. And at the end of it, you shake hands. And I, I, I likened it to, I don't want to get into hockey because I don't know anything about it. But I said, it's, it's like a, a hockey game where, you know, I watch hockey games every once in a while and these guys beat the, crap out of each other for an hour, uh or two hours or however long it is, and then go out and have a couple of beers together. And that's kinda how I see it. You know, it doesn't, doesn't have to impact your relationship or your friendship, as long as you do it the right way. As long as you don't lie to somebody or cheat somebody or 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 do something underhanded. I think you maintain those relationships and that's been more my experience than being at odds with anyone is uh, good relationships with with most front office people that I've ever dealt with. It's really Probably. about trust. You
2: Go know, ahead. Ned. It's really about trust, and uh, you know those agents that I I got along best with, and and few better than Barry, maybe none better than Barry. Uh, it was really because I, I trusted what I was hearing, and I also trusted after the contract was executed. I also trusted that if I had an issue or a concern with a player. That I could bring it to the agent, and the agent would help the player, help myself, help the organization figure out what we were going to do. And a lot of agents, once they signed a contract, good luck getting them back on the phone. Good luck having them help out a player uh, or help out an organization because of a player that that got into uh, a little bit of trouble or went down the wrong road. And uh, Barry was always somebody... That I knew I wasn't just doing a contract with that there was that he was going to be honest and forthcoming with it, uh, but that I that he was going to he was going to be uh, an agent for the player for a long time, and and had to do what was right, and but also was responsible to to making sure that a deal didn't get off the tracks after a deal had been executed, because of uh, of, of not paying attention to what both sides really needed out of a situation. And the last thing I'll say about it is, uh, it's a great line, from, uh, I think, from The Godfather, which I've probably seen maybe once, uh, if not a thousand times. <laughs> uh, it's business. It wasn't personal. And um, I knew when I talked to Barry about Rick Sutcliffe or, or Mark Grace or, or any of the other players, that, uh, Richie Aurelia during my Giant days, that it was, it was going to be hard fought. And it was going to be him representing his client to the best. Position he could possibly do, and he knew I was going to do the same thing for the Cubs for the Giants. But he also probably knew that you know I wasn't going to BS him about what the guy's role was going to be or what we thought or or, or try and compare him to a player that uh, he had no business being compared to on a negative side.
1: Yeah, my my thought on that, and, and underlying thought on that, and I agree with that on every point he just made. I always viewed, and I have said this, I've probably said it to Ned before, that our, our, really we have the same goal here, which is, whether it's Mark Grace or Rick Sutcliffe or Richie Aurelia or Matt Morris or whoever it was that we worked together on, is we want that guy to succeed and continue to succeed and and hopefully come back and negotiate another big contract you know, a few years down the line. That, that was what I wanted. I wanted to see these guys have long, successful careers. And I think if you're a team, you want the same thing, bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so if uh, when you do represent, I, I always I used to be called the, the agent of the good guys. And I, I would always say, okay, if I'm representing the good guys, what are these other guys dealing with? <laughs> just, you know, when you get lunatics like Mark Grace or Rick Sutcliffe, you know, there's, they, they never gotten into any ugly trouble with times and especially Gracie. You'd have to, Ned him, oh my goodness. You know, here's what, well, what are we going to do here? Okay. We'll have a talk and, you know, we'll settle things down. But, uh, we well, you didn't want to, you didn't want to diminish his personality too much because he was, he was a character, but, uh, yeah. You know, every once in a while, yeah. Okay, Gracie, come on. Let's bring it back between the lines here. So yeah, we would work together on that. Um, yeah, that's a mutual goal. Let me uh,
0: <clears throat> let me finish it up here, guys. I can't believe we're on the on the time here, but uh, I'm wondering. Both of you have been in it long enough to have seen a ton of changes, especially when it comes to the money. Where are we with the agents and the clubs? In this day and age, is it is it as good the relationships as you're talking about that you had with one another, has it uh, denigrated or, or better or about the same?
1: Um, I I don't I don't I don't know what kind of relationships um, GMs have with agents. I used to talk with Kevin about it at times. I, I, I think I've probably talked to Ned about it. You know, complaining about a particular agent or thinking that a, a particular agent was good in the view of clubs you know but reasonable um i think for the most part agents are probably reasonable i don't know if they have the same types of relationships we had uh because um i think the gms and front office people these days are different and i guess agents are too um, and, and in regard to ned i mean ned and i go back to 1984 when Rick Sutcliffe signed with the Cubs, was, uh, was traded to the Cubs, not signed with them, Where uh, when he was traded to the Cubs in midseason. and Ned was actually a, a contact person, being the PR guy, and we, we got to know each other then in, in his role as the PR director. And, I mean, that, that friendship got so deep that Rick formed a, a foundation that uh, was uh, helpful to people around Chicago, scholarships, or, uh, season tickets to games. And we had to have an administrator. And the administrator we brought on board was Ned's wife, Gail, who did a terrific job on the foundation for years. So that's how close we were in the relationship we had. As Ned gravitated into doing other things, and I continue to represent guys, we still had that underlying long-term relationship. And I don't know that those long-term relationships exist that way anymore.
2: I I agree. Um, you know, I, I see it a little bit from the outside more than the inside. So it, I, I say it from that perspective. Um, when and in the 40 years that I was deeply in the game, the opportunity to learn and to have fun doing it was immense. And, you know, you'd have your day and then you have your night game. And then after the game, you would end up with somebody whether it was a manager, a coach, an agent, a writer, you'd end up with somebody where you would talk the game till one, two, three in the morning, and build relationships and I think that whenever whenever you have a relationship that all you do is ask somebody to do something for you or your department, or you only it's only an ask type of relationship it's really tough to do business. I think when you get to know people and you you get them with uh, uh, where you know people can, quote, put their guard down a little bit and be who they are, and you get a chance to understand the dynamic of the human being. I think it, it it fortifies business. It fuels business. It fuels relationships. I don't know how much of that goes on anymore. I learned so much in my career from a guy like Barry. I learned the agent business a little bit from, from people like Barry, Tony Antonasio. Uh, Joe Bick. I, uh, I learned a lot of baseball, a lot of inside, inside baseball from guys like Don Zimmer, Jimmy Fry, Dallas green, Lee Elia. I don't know that that goes on anymore, but I, mm-hmm. I, I, would have not, um, love, I love the sport from the outset, but I fell deeper and deeper in love with it. And to appreciate it to a much grander, uh, presence than than I had even as a young kid when I when it was all I ever did or wanted to be. Uh, it, it grew and grew and grew because of the relationships with the people inside of it that you could talk about your day, their day, their challenges, your challenges, their successes, your successes, on and on. And I and I don't know that that's still there. I'm not saying it's not. I just don't know that it is. And do know that it was there for the 40 years that I was in the midst of
1: it. Yeah, I, I agree, Ned. I can't imagine that it's still there because people are, are a little they're not they don't have the history uh that, that we were able to develop and I think people would be surprised if if I like I I can remember moments uh, like Ned said sitting around after a game in a bar or a, a restaurant, uh, where I, I remember in particular with the Giants, there would be Mark Sweeney, um Richie Aurelia. Uh, Felipe Alou, Ned, a couple of my friends, if the team was in L.A. playing, uh, you know, Mark Harmon, who Ned got to know through that, and, you know, baseball fans, and everybody would be sitting around visiting, maybe a sports writer or two, you know, uh, uh, people from all realms of baseball, you know, you you, you might see uh, an, an umpire walked through and chit hound for a minute. They're are not supposed to, but that would happen. But you know, people people knew each other long term and were friendly. Uh, it was almost
2: every night. Yeah, the only night it didn't happen is if you had a tra- if you were traveling. Other than that, it happened pretty much every night from the beginning of spring training until the end of your season, whenever it was. And it, it brought life to the game. You know, I mean, I this show for me, we could we could do this for two or three hours. I wouldn't get tired of it. You know, and having conversations about the game, about about players, about things you've seen, all that history. That's that's I missed two things since I left the GM gig. One is these types of conversations with good people like Barry and, and Gary and, and and guys like you, and also the competition. You know, the competition I get other ways of the hockey good hockey job and and uh, you know doing a TV thing, but the conversations like this. I don't know that they exist anymore. And I, mm-hmm. and I miss them because it's, it's where you got to see the soul, the soul of the people and the sport you loved.
1: Yep. You know, you even hear it on the level of the players uh, who, you know, they don't sit around the clubhouse, uh, you know, having two or three beers after the game and talking the game. They all, they all bolt. They're, you know, they're, they, they're gone. They hold, you know, 25 calves or 25 players. I don't know if it's that bad. And I'm not saying every team's like that but I don't think it's the way it used to be with, you know, sitting around in the clubhouse, listening to the veterans talk the game. And, uh, you know, I, I think that has disappeared to a great yeah. extent. Well, on that cheery
0: note, gentlemen, <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I get to thinking about, for me, uh, I started out with Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner with the Mets uh, doing games, Bob and I doing radio. And it, it was the same thing. I mean, there wasn't a game night or day where we weren't sitting at a bar, or having a meal at a restaurant with those guys talking baseball. And if for me as a broadcaster, somebody says, what's the greatest thing you ever had? You know, yeah, I've done World Series games. I've done all-star games. I got a ring, blah, blah, blah. But I was those moments that I spent in the middle chair. I always said the best seat I ever had in baseball was at the bar between Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner. Oh, and sure. Just listen, yeah. I mean, that's it. If it, that was the joy, that was the fun, and uh, and I uh, unfortunately I think social media has a lot to do with that. I think guys are afraid that wherever they go, whatever they do, somebody's taking a picture or a video, and it's going to end up on a social media somewhere in a negative way towards them and. And uh, that's really sad because uh, that takes a lot out of what you get out of this game. That's for a whole other show, guys. <laughs> all right, that's going to do it for uh, our chapter of the Sports Rivals for Ned Colletti, Barry Axelrod. Thank you guys so much. Just it is such a treat. I couldn't agree more. I could do this all day long and just sit here and talk. You can learn more about what we do and other episodes by logging on to thesportsrivals.com. You can join the conversation with questions and suggestions for future shows. You can follow us on Instagram at the Sports Rivals, Twitter at Rivals underscore podcast, and on Facebook by searching for the Sports Rivals podcast. Thank you again for joining us, everybody. We wish all of you to be well. And always remember, it is the rivalries that make the games. Be well, folks.